Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Smells Like Business, where you can learn more about the current and future state of cannabis, CBD, and hemp in Europe. Every episode, we talk to different cannabis experts and entrepreneurs, making it easier for you to understand the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Tom, and today we have Xavier Gaia on the show. Xavier is the Managing Director for Resin Seeds, a Spanish seed bank that specializes in CBD-rich genetics. He's also the head of EU sales for Clonetics, a Canadian nursery cultivar offering ready-to-flower clones and having the largest breeder-backed global catalog in the industry. But we're going to save Clinetics for another episode. On this episode, it's all about resin seeds and how Xavier developed his cannabis career over the last 20 years. Fun fact, resin seeds created Canatonic, which is one of the first CBD-rich strains to hit the market. Since then, the company has been working hard at creating more CBD-rich genetics to help supply the growing demand. But before I give away any more, let's just get into it. Hi, Xavier. How's it going? Welcome to the Smells Like Business show. Hey, Tom. How are you? Yeah, very well. I'm glad to finally have you on the show. It was great meeting up in uh, Berlin in person at the ICBC. Uh, We had a a lovely little conversation and I wanted to get you on the podcast. And we're doing it beginning of 2023. What better time to do it than now? So great. I mean, for our listeners, maybe first you could tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, how you kickstarted your cannabis career. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for starters, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to to be here and to help your listeners engage in the cannabis space. So uh, I'm originally from Mexico. I lived in the United States for some time. And then I came out to Spain about 20 some odd years ago. And I was fortunate enough to cross paths with some um, industry heavyweights at the time some important breeders based out of Switzerland and Italy, who were some of the developers of the uh, building blocks and some of the basic strains that we all know and love today, like Critical Mass and White Widow and a lot of the haze lines and some very important breeders. Even White Widow, I mean, that's one of the really old school ones. Yeah, yeah. I found out later on that there's a little bit of a debate, actually, then who that original breeder is. That's always some fun things to have. But no, this individual in particular in the seed bank uh, that I was involved with was a really fortunate and lucky experience for me to to step my foot in and bathe myself in in the so-called fountain of of knowledge of cannabis, because a lot of people have a rough path or a barrier of entry into the space. Uh, A lot of people would love to have this cannabis industry kind of hold them and, and walk them through the the pacings of what it would like to get a job here, but it's not so easy. It's not such a, a warm embrace. There's not a clear career path. So for me, that was the the, the fortunate way in is just meeting these uh, important, reputable breeders, going to expos, going to meetings with them, uh, eventually working with them, getting hired to do all kinds of work. I started doing things like moderating websites. I was doing things like running lab tests on on flour just kind of random stuff. And then little by little being entrusted to uh, more, I guess, interesting roles and then getting inquiries from other seed banks. And then eventually I got, I was able to meet uh, Jaime, who is the owner or one of the owners and founder of Resin Seeds and the breeder of Canatonic, which is a kind of a fortunate discovery for its medical value. It was not 
create uh, intentionally created for any medicinal value in particular other than an interesting cannabis thc experience and uh, some of the offspring that were found in there were found to be in equal parts high in both cbd and thc mm -hmm. which is something that was not very common or frequent at the time so that was back in 2008 and in 2010 is when I met these individuals and started collaborating with them and officially took over as managing director at Resident Seeds in 2015. That's kind of my entryway or my foray into the space. And then little by little, I've, I've been able to fortunately pursue some other projects, which have led me further on down a, a career, a very interesting landscape. And there's certainly a future to which I'm not entirely privy to because, you know, I'm not, you know who, but it looks promising. I think there is a, certainly a space for me in this industry uh, based on my experience in previous years and the connections I've established. And I've actually been very fortunate. So to those people who kind of have that curiosity of kind of the best way to entering into the space, it's kind of through organic networking is the I guess the easiest or the best way to involve yourself. Sometimes that means investing in yourself and attending conferences like the one that I met you at in Berlin. And it's just about being forward and introducing yourself and and, and having something interesting or of value to add. Yeah. Um, then people will listen to you and then slowly you can expand your network base. And I've been very fortunate to have this experience in this space. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do in today's day and age. And I can imagine 20 years ago, you know, when things were even less developed, you know, industry and also we can question the legality of it all as well, especially in Europe 20 years ago. So I'm sure there was no easy path uh, to entry back then. And then I guess also time is in your favor, right? You've also been in the industry or been been working with cannabis now for quite a long time. I think you said 20 years plus. Or... Yeah, no. I mean, at, at this point, I've been involved yeah, with cannabis cultivation for around 20 years or so. And on the industry side for maybe a, a little around a dozen or so. Mm -hmm. um, this was this conversation that I was having with a gentleman earlier this morning who was looking for some advice. And one of the complicated things for people in my space to transition into the legal corporate space is our experience, although it comes with vast amount of knowledge that would be very relevant to existing cannabis operations, they're many times hesitant to hire people who are coming from a certain background or of a certain experience. And there has to be a way for the vast amount of growers who are at this point around the world who are priming for legalization who would like to give up the so-called black market aspect of life of, you know, selling to strangers or dangers of getting arrested or getting, you know, raided or, or whatever. So, you know, people who can look to a brighter future and say, hey, look, I don't have to live that way anymore, but I can still pursue the passion that I love, which is growing the cannabis plant. Um, there's a strict barrier of entry for a lot of these people based on this experience. You can't just walk into a company who has a massive amount of funding and say, uh, you know, I want a job. This is my experience. So that's been kind of one of the complicated things for the people in this space, because you'll have a lot of excellent growers around the world, but they, they don't necessarily have a legitimate corporate experience. And I think I think that's something that I took seriously a few years ago and realized that if I was going to make this step forward, I had to abandon that. So for me, I'm very happy to to say that it's been over 12, 15 years where I fully abandoned the, the legacy market. And even then, I wasn't, you know, any kind of a player in any way. I was just exploring, mm -hmm. you know, possibilities more on the medicinal side. But the landscape of where I lived in Europe, it was always touching on the on the borderlines of gray areas. So now I'm very, very fortunate to say that my 
my work and my career is entirely based on on things to which uh, I don't I don't have to ever worry about. And I can certainly be proud about and talk about and, and share with family and friends. And mm-hmm. now I have children in school and I can talk to the other parents without having to worry and be proud of my work in the campus space. I mean, that says a lot about how much the industry has grown. So the future does look bright. We'll see how bright and how it evolves. But um, all right, let's move on. So I think it's great, especially being a European, to hear people that are from one place, work in a different place, for a company from a different place. You know, it's very, very 21st century, very global. It's very post-COVID, right? Also, Very post-COVID indeed, yeah, working remotely and everything. I'm even umming and ahhing whether to relocate to Spain with the better weather, with a bit more of the industry stuff going on as well. So, But let's talk a little bit about Resin Seeds, because I know that you've been working with them for minimum seven and a half years, if not longer. It's a Spanish seed bank uh, that I think you said started in 2008. So how would you describe the company in your own words? And and how do they differentiate themselves from, you know, the plethora of other seed banks out there? I appreciate that. So for starters, it was a company whose intention was to breed high THC genetics that were high in in resin. Uh, That would be good resin producers for for hash making. Hence the name. Hence Hence the the name, name, right? So. Spain is a country that, due to its proximity to Morocco and obligatory military service, there was a lot of males who had experience with hashish over the years, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And Spain was not a country where one could find cannabis easily uh, until at least the early 2000s. This would have been almost impossible in, in the 90s and almost until around 2002, 2003. When there was a, a shift from, I guess, the more global users who were coming into Spain and, and teaching the Spanish and the Spanish learning about, I guess, the benefits of smoking flour and not just hashish with tobacco. So it kind of starts there. And through developing certain genetics that were high in THD for these kind of hashish users at home, one of the strains was canatonic. And this was back when, when we were a company whose only differentiation from the rest was our intention to at least have very highly resinous genetics. And one of the marriages from some of these strains, which included New York City Diesel and Blue Heaven and Reina Madre, the resulting offspring was then taken to Spanabis in, I believe, 2007 or 2008. And it was at the Fundación Cana stand. Cana Nutrients have a big stand there, and they also have a foundation where they do laboratory analysis and cannabinoid testing. And that's where there was 20 or 30 different strains from all kinds of uh, growers and producers that entered samples of their genetics to get tested. Yeah, so the the testing from Canna comes back and we're noticing that Canatonic turned out to be 6% to 6% or 8 and 8, something like that, CBD to THC. At the time, we weren't even really aware of the value of having a genetic that was high in CBD. And, and there was a gentleman who was working with us at the time, Stefan de Meyer, who's uh, well known in the LinkedIn space and very much a good friend of mine, pointed out that very fact to us that it's high in CBD, that this is something that's abnormal. And then a bit of research led to us understanding its medicinal potential. So both in its anti-psychoactive potential, as well as anti-metastatic and other properties that it has. We realized that there's a huge medicinal value to this strain. And that's kind of where we started focusing our efforts because there was a vast, vast need for it. There was a huge demand online, especially from people with neuropathic pain and a lot of cancer patients who were looking for solutions 
for palliative care and just to help with pain in general. And we realized that this would be one of the best efforts that a cannabis seed bank could make in empowering people. So we were very fortunate that the results were actually highly, highly beneficial, that people were taking these flowers, they were consuming them. So it kind of goes from there that Resin Seeds became a company that realized that there was a value in these genetics, which could empower people to no longer rely on big pharma or could at least accompany whatever you know guidelines or medications that big pharma was imposing on them and then have either an alternative or a companion approach to help better their, their situations, their conditions, whatever they may be. And it turns out that the response was huge from the medicinal community. We, we got all kinds of feedback from all kinds of people. And then eventually we started hearing from mothers who were making the oil to use on their epileptic children, epileptic children, sorry. This was something that was to us kind of shocking. But later on, we understood that there's some types of epilepsy which are so severe that only certain types of extreme medication or, or almost nothing could be done at all. There's one in particular, for example, that was called Dravid syndrome that we were hearing about from some mothers whose children were having three to 400 epileptic seizures a day, and any one of them could be fatal. And cannabis was having a tremendous response in, in helping to attenuate these symptoms and then later on to prevent them. So it was working as both a rescue and a, a preventative and so we really kind of understood our, our potential, but we never really marketed ourselves as a you know medicinal company or a pharma company anyway. It was just a company who sold our seeds here in Europe uh, following EU guidelines as allows for the sale of souvenir and aficionado seeds. And, you know, telling people that the potential for a high medicinal value was there. And then if they wanted to give them access to links and, and other resources to teach them how they might be able to turn those flowers into consumable cannabinoids, which would enhance their lives. So that's kind of where Resin Seeds went. Yeah. I love it how it started almost by accident. You got some seeds tested in a lab and one sort of outcast ended up being not what made the company, but definitely attributed to your success. And then, of course, you know, the big cherry on the top is that you're helping patients. And you brought CBD to the forefront, I think, before the CBD train really hit Europe, right? We certainly did. We certainly did. And, and, and I know that there's not much debate now because we had some of these established by journalists at this point. But um, we were among the first to provide these CBD genetics, including, for example, Tikkun Olam, who purchased seeds from us and then came up with Abby Deckel. Jaime, our, our breeder and founder, eventually visited their facility and saw his plants growing there. So there's a very, very high suspicion of the true origins of that strain. We sold seeds to the Stanley Brothers, who came up with Charlotte's Web. We sold seeds to Ringo, to Lawrence Ringo, who came up with Sour Tsunami. So there's a traceability that comes from our end, and we know where these genetics are coming from. Genetic mapping helps establish this, that Canatonic is one of the true cornerstones of CBD breeding. And that's certainly one of the things that helped put us on the map. Later on, it went um, into the public ether. It's one of the few strains that was mentioned on South Park on one of those seasons where they, they went into the, the cannabis space. I think it was the Tegrity Farm season. Mm -hmm. So Canatonic has really made itself into the mainstream. It's, it's certainly a genetic that people really kind of know about all around the world. And that's one of the things that really helped put Resin Seeds on the map. Since then, we went on to do some really cool things in Uruguay with Positronics, another Spanish seed bank. We helped to develop the first two strains that were sold ever legally ever in the world in the pharmacies in Uruguay. It was Alpha and Beta, the first strains that were sold there. Uh, we developed those in exclusivity for the Uruguayan government. So that's a really cool thing, right? Because Uruguay were the first country 
to legalize, like you said. So those were the first legal cultivars right there. Yeah. Absolutely. The first seed bank that can say that they, I guess, at this point, worked with a, with a federal government, IRCA, in Uruguay to establish these genetics. And so that was also a very interesting stepping stone for us to kind of get us to where we are today. And then since then, we've gone on to do some things in Thailand and now in Portugal as well. So there's a really, really interesting future for resin, but I think even more so for Clinetics, which I know you wanted to ask me about a little bit later. Yeah, definitely. We'll get on to that indeed. So, I mean, like we said, you've been working for resin seeds for over seven and a half years. I mean, at least as a managing director, even longer, I think, in, in other positions. First off, you must be enjoying working for them if you've been with them for that long. But uh, secondly, how has the company grown and developed from 2015 until now? Have there been any growing pains or have there been any big mountains you've had to climb? Well, certainly in the last years, there has been some hurdles and obstacles to face with the seed market here in Europe. There's been, especially in Spain, there's been a lot of restrictions on producers. We've always respected Uh, all of the rules and regulations within the EU, but a lot of the seed banks and breeders have not. So there has been a a tightened overhaul and and look to the whole industry in general. This has also affected sales. I guess a part of it was just the boom of other seed banks who were trying to capitalize on the market potential and uh, just saw that like, you know, making some seeds would be able to provide them with with a quick buck. So too many people flooding the market, making it really, really cheap. And then others doing a wrong or unethical job, getting shut down, and then bringing kind of unwanted attention to the space. Of course, it's a shame that there's a few people that do bad practices. And then I guess there's a bit of a ripple effect, right? And then it affects the whole sector. Yeah, I know. It's a complicated space to work in. Our company, and I don't know about others, but our company has tried to make an effort and a shift in the last few years. We made a shift to heavy reproduction on CBD or high CBD genetics, which is something that we'd really been asked for for a long time. And we were a little bit slow to get there, but we finally came out with some genetics that were high in CBD and low in THC, either up to 0.2, 0.3, or up to 1% THC, depending on different markets where they have their different requirements. And we focused on doing that and seed sales were, were doing pretty well. Spain in general was a great kind of market for that is where we were focusing us being here locally. But in the last few years, that's something that has been, again, been heavily restricted by the Spanish authorities. They have not wanted people entering into the CBD production of flower space. And, you know, to avoid any kind of problems with uh, authorities, you know, that's something that we've decided to stop, which was something that was pointed out to us, uh, I guess, providing seeds to farmers. We were providing seeds legally with bills of sale, but then I guess they were putting them into the ground. So, you know, just to avoid any kind of general issues with that, we've decided to try to stay as legit as possible, especially looking at the existing panorama of prosecution, even if it's not in the legal space, but just actually just being kind of pressured from all directions. So we've shifted our approach to genetics and uh, advisory. And I think uh, in the genetics context, we're still able to sell seeds. But this is always now we're shifting through our partners around the world, seeds that have traceability, that have certificate of origins, that have full COAs, phytosanitaries. And that's how we're able to kind of keep the sustainability of, of the company alive through providing seeds in that way. But one of the other shifts that we've had is looking at selling clones through some of our genetic partners, in particular through Clinetics in Canada. 
Ah, yes, Clinetics in Canada, for whom you also work for. Well, as you can hear, that's where the conversation is naturally going, but as I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to save Clinetics for a future episode. Just too many good things to talk about with this guy to cram into one episode. So I just want to thank Xavier for the conversation we've had so far. If you like what you hear, keep your eyes and ears open for part two with Xavier, where we get into clones. Exciting stuff. But if you want to learn more about Resin Seeds or buy some of their seeds, you can check out their website at resinseeds.net. That's R-E-S-I-N-S-E-E-D-S dot net N-E-T. And if you want to find out more about what we do at Smells Like Business, sign up to our newsletter or subscribe to this podcast. Check out our website at smellslikebusiness.com. I've been your host, Tom. Have a green day. Business.